Maybe you've seen him at Columbia's music venues, or maybe you've read our Q&A with him about Columbia's music scene. Whether familiar or not, meet Richard King. He co-founded the Blue Note, was the former owner of Rose Music Hall, organized the First Roots and Blues Festival, and now owns Cooper's Landing, a year-round campground and live music venue. King has brought popular talent to Columbia like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, R.E.M., the Black Keys, and Arcade Fire, to name a few. Today, we're going to dig deeper into how Richard King came to be a pillar of Columbia's music scene. I'm your host, Grace Cooper, and here's our reporter, Julian Nazar, in conversation with Richard King. Welcome to Vox Voice. Hi, everyone. This is Julian Nazar with Vox Voice, and I'm joined today with Richard King, the current owner of Cooper's Landing. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start off by asking you, what started your love for music? I happen to be one of those lucky ones that grew up in the 60s. -hmm. So I think I was probably like eight or nine years old when the Beatles came out. I think the Beach Boys had put out Pet Sounds. And uh, my source for music was AM radio. I really liked it. I wasn't much of an academic, but I I loved listening to music. So I guess, you know, cool. early age, I, I was really fascinated with music. And now I want to ask you, I'm curious what your origin story is into Columbia's music scene. <laughs> Did you have early on any mentors or music icons who kind of inspired you? No, I carried my music nerdiness all the way here to Columbia, Missouri. I grew up in <laughs> Pennsylvania. Just the group of us, we, we hung out in record stores. We spent a lot of time in record stores and we used to have parties at our houses and we would either make up tapes or we would just spin records. Mm-hmm. But it was always just an interest in music, current music, the music that was coming up. It was just something that, you know, I, I sort of gravitated to a group of people mm-hmm. that liked music. And, and when I moved here to Columbia, I was lucky to discover some of the music clubs here. So found my way to those places yeah. and met more musicians and things like that. So it was just something that I was really always interested in. And I'm curious to hear now kind of those first couple first years after you launched Blue Note, mm-hmm. what were those like? Who did you kind of open it with, and what was the inspiration behind getting into that venture? It it was a learning experience for us in, in all respects. I mean, the one thing that was going on around that time period was, and once again, you're too young to remember this, <laughs> but MTV came about. And really? wow. MTV had a huge effect on what we were doing because it – played a lot of the music that we we liked, you know. Mm-hmm. So bands coming up in those days, I don't think they would have gained the popularity that they have today if it wasn't for something like MTV. And just to remind you, MTV back in 1981 was all music. So yeah. it was all music video. So I don't even know what goes on on MTV <laughs> these days. It was something like a reinforcement for us, you know, because... Yeah. Other than college radio and public radio, commercial radio, you didn't get a lot. We weren't that interested in in that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. And now I kind of want to ask you to push back the current a little bit. And I'm wondering what it was like behind the scenes (laughs) at the Blue Note in Rose Music Hall. (laughs) (laughs) Well, er early on, it was a struggle. It really was. And, you know, I had a partner when I started out the Blue Note. My, My partner was Phil Costello, who currently lives in Los Angeles. We didn't have a whole lot of money or anything like that. And it was just, you know, we're just figuring it out. We thought we were really smart, but as it turned out, we weren't. <laughs> you know, when you say pull back the curtain, you know, really honestly, 
for those first few years, it was Phil and I, we did the cleaning in the mornings. He did sound in the evenings. I was usually behind the bar. We went up on campus every day and put up flyers. Mm. We were a very low-tech type operation. And one of the things about all that was we couldn't really afford to pay for advertising uh, at that point because we really we didn't have a whole lot of money. Most of the people that worked for us, in fact, I think all the people that worked for us at the beginning worked for tips. There was no payroll. Wow. They were they wanted to see it happen. You know, and there was a, there was something going on back in those days. Mm-hmm. I think MTV had a lot to do with stuff, but yeah. the alternative music scene like KCOU was a big big factor in our success. We'd stay in touch with all the all the on-air folks and we would just make sure that we were included in the conversation when it came to music. But we, you know, we just tried to build a reputation. I think that was the most important mm-hmm. thing, is to build a reputation to make sure that when these bands did show up, we did pay them what we promised them and try and get them places to sleep and feed them and things like that. And and, and we figured out that, that much that the, the better you treat a band, um, the more likely they're going to walk out the door and say, hey, that was a great, great place to play. We should go back there, mm-hmm. you know, things like that. And how did you ultimately come to the decision to move locations at the Blue Note, and what challenges mm. and changes did that bring? Well, the decision to move the Blue Note was it was something I was co- sort of wrangling with for several months. At that point, you know, we're, not, we're now into the late 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, the club had established a great reputation. We were very fortunate to bring in lots of great bands. You know, most of the agents knew us. They knew we were reliable, and we were a college town, so that was that was very appealing to them. But you know that room down there, the old Blue Note. I have so many vivid memories of musical experiences in that room, so it was really hard to extract myself from that room. But I did know, in order for me to grow the business the way I felt it should grow, and that was to present in the best possible venue you could, yeah. I had to move. So the opportunity came to me to move to the theater downtown, which was called the Varsity Theater. You, you know, and it was funny. I mean, I, I, I also remember that vividly, that the little arguments I would have with myself, when my, when my head hit the pillow, it would say, you got to do it. Even though it's, yeah. it's a big challenge and you are scared, you got to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how that happened. And one of the big events that you're known for is Roots and Blues. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you, kind of what it was like organizing that. Had you ever planned a festival before? <laughs> and then what are your thoughts now on how far it has come today? Other events that I had worked on, but Roots and Blues was presented to me in a way that um, I was very excited because it was something that I've always loved, mm-hmm. especially music-wise. I thought that to accomplish something like that in Columbia would involve a, a lot of money, and thank goodness there was support there. Yeah. But the bands that they had talked about were right up my alley. In fact, it was one of those things where I couldn't resist. I was really excited. And, and you know, at that point in time, um, I had very good uh, relationships with all the agents and the managers and the band. So for me, it was just picking up the phone and calling all these folks. It was fun booking all the bands, and that was relatively easy, I, yeah. I would say. But, you know, the actual production of the event was something where I had the most experience. So not only did I have the task of, you know, booking the bands, which was fine, yeah. 
But then I realized that, wow, we don't have anybody to run production here. And then I had to take my own staff at the Blue Note and say, okay, folks, now we got to build bars downtown so we can sell beer and soda mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So it was absolutely insane, yeah. to be honest with you, because we were allowed like 48 hours to get start setting up downtown for a festival. Wow. It, it, it was very difficult, mm-hmm. but we made it happen. Pulled it off. We pulled it off. Yeah, <laughs> it was pretty crazy. But I mean, everybody involved just wanted to make sure we got it right. And as we got closer to the date, there was a buzz in town. Mm-hmm. The Columbia Police Department, you know, thought there was close to 100,000 people in, in downtown wow. Columbia over that weekend. Yeah. And it was free. Okay, so that that certainly has a lot to do with it. And I and I really think that the artists that we brought in really gave us a lot of credibility. And it was it was something to uh, carry on over the years. Yeah. And now kind of flashing forward to today, what are your thoughts on how it's evolved over the years and what it's like today, Roots and Blues? Well, I think that they're in the right venue. There's no question about that. And I always thought that Stevens Lake Park was the best venue for for the event. You know, it used to be right here on campus downtown. And it's so much easier to produce it when you're in a park because you have three or four days to get everything set up. I think the the people that are involved in in running the festival are more than capable of carrying on the tradition. Uh, and, And like any event like Roots and Blues, there's going to be some changes. There's going to be some, you know, they're going to have their own ideas and stuff like that, which is perfectly understandable. But I think that there's no question it's they're in good hands. They have a great venue. And I think they're doing a great job of building. I'm, I'm curious now, after being in, in the live music scene for so long, <laughs> how did you ultimately come to that decision? What was the driving force behind the decision to sell the Blue Note and Rose Music Hall? Well, there was a little thing that popped up. I had a heart condition. I was a pretty healthy person. You know, I run, swim, bike, and all that kind of stuff, and I stay pretty healthy. But I had this condition where I had to have my aortic valve replaced, Mm -hmm. which involved open-heart surgery. So that all went great. And people would whisper in my ear, you're going to be a changed person. You know, it's going to affect you in ways you never would expect. And, And after I recovered, and my recovery was fine, I'm healthy as I've ever been. Mm -hmm. There was a change in attitude about how I felt about life in general and continuing on with the Blue Note and Mojos. I was having fun, but I thought, you know, there had been people pursuing me to sell. I had three different groups that were pursuing me, and the group that ended up purchasing the Blue Note and Mojos at the time, they waited till I I got through my recovery, Mm -hmm. and then they reached back out and said, would you be interested in talking? I said, yeah, let's, let's sit down and talk. So it was, uh, you know, and that was, and that was 30, 34 years that I think I owned the Blue Note. So yeah. it was a long time. Although I really encourage young people at the Blue Note, I really wanted to give fresh blood, younger folks and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, license in helping run the Blue Note. But yeah. it was time. It was time after that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering what it was like going from an established venue, right, like the Blue Note, to <laughs> Cooper's Landing. I, I can say this, that my 34 years of experience running the Blue Note and what is now Rose Hall um, came in really handy for me. Uh, I had already built up relationships with most of the local musicians, local vendors. So the challenge was that this was something that was completely different than doing the Blue Note. And it started off, and I'm not sure if you're, if you're familiar, but it flooded the mm-hmm. first week that I owned it. At that point, uh, I, w- I was really nervous. I was in yeah. trouble. I had never experienced anything like that. And the place was underwater for two months. Wow. 
But I say there was a silver lining in that cloud. And what I mean by that is there were a lot of things that were wrong with the property at Cooper's mm-hmm. Landing, and the flood washed it away one way or the other. Yeah. But it gave me a clean slate on the property. And after about six or seven months, I was able to visualize, like, this is a very pretty piece of property with mm-hmm. with the Missouri River on one side yeah. Yeah. and the Katy Trail on the other side. So... I started thinking, yeah. there's a lot here. Clean it up was my number one goal. And, and you know, now I, I'm having fun. We're well over two years into it. Yeah. And uh, I have a really good idea what direction I want to go in. Mm-hmm. You know, we want to we keep the camping going. We still want to do live music, mostly regional yeah. and local things, and have the best selection of beer in all of Boone County. <laughs> and make people feel welcome and make yeah. feel, people feel comfortable. And that was, I think, one of the biggest hurdles we had to get over. It was a heck of a challenge. But I do think I'm kind of a better person for it. And Mm -hmm. and I honestly can say today that I'm enjoying what I'm doing and and I'm having fun. Yeah. So it sounds like you wouldn't have done anything differently. You know, it's funny. I didn't have like a real plan when I went in there, which is probably people would probably say, what are you, crazy? (laughs) And they're they're true. I am crazy uh, in in most circles. But it, it was one of those things where... Once I got a feel for the property and feel for what I had, I had no idea yeah. the volume of people that bike on the Katy Trail. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the people that cross the state, it's like a bucket list thing for people yeah. to, to ride across the state on the Katy Trail. And then the, a resource like the Missouri River, mm-hmm. which, you know, put me in my place <laughs> the first week I owned yeah. it. But it's an incredible resource. So I think there's, there's a lot to work with there. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what my motivation is. And then going back to the music scene in Colombia, mm-hmm. what do you kind of think is next for this music scene in general? And where do you see yourself? What role will you be playing in it moving forward? People come up and say this and that to me about music. <laughs> I don't own the Blue Note anymore. I don't own Rose anymore. And those are two great venues that I think they do an outstanding job. Mm-hmm. So in my little world down there, Cooper's Landing, I love having regional and local artists come down and have a stage for them. That's what I like. I think it's a great setting for live music. And honestly, that's where I want to keep it. So I don't really plan on making big changes other than making it more friendly and clean it up. And then finally, just to kind of uh, put things, bring things to a close, what is it about, whether it be in Colombia or somewhere else, what is it about music that resonates so deeply with you that keeps you coming back? You know, when I left the Blue Note, it didn't take but a a year or so to just start to recognize all these things that happened to me in my life. Mm -hmm. I'm one of the most fortunate people on this planet because of the people that I met, the people that I got to work with. And that has an incredible influence on me today. But, you know, when you're growing up in the business, you're trying to do the best you can for a market this size. And I just realized that I, I was just so fortunate to to be able to do all those things, mm-hmm. recognize all those things. So I, I think back of all those relationships, all those people that I met, all those people yeah. that performed, and to be standing in the middle of the room watching this with a lot of happy people, mm-hmm. I don't think I could have asked for any, anything more. It was very, it's very rewarding to me yeah. to think of my past. And I moved on, but, mm-hmm. but I'm very happy. So really it was the people involved in the music industry that really kept you coming back. Oh. It was those relationships, the richness of kind oh, of Oh, I, I would tell anybody it was relationships, yeah. you know. And what I 
learned pretty early on when we owned the business is building relationships. I may be oversimplifying, but when a band came and showed up at the Blue Note and, you know, there was 20 people there, mm-hmm. we made sure they were taken care of. We made sure they were paid. And they would walk out the door and they have managers and they have agents. And they go, well, it wasn't a big crowd, but those guys were great. It was a great place. And I do think that after a while, these agents would call up and say, hey, so we got this bigger act. We need to fill this date. And we'd say, you know, bring it. So honestly, the relationships, not only just with agents and managers and band people, but the people that worked for you, you know, I learned the value of, of, you know, people that are invested in what you're doing, people that worked hard for you, Mm -hmm. people that took a lot of crap sometimes too, you know, and I realized that I could do some good by owning the Blue Note in the community. Basically, this is a great community I live in. And to be able to expand and work with different organizations, actually work with the City of Columbia, Mm -hmm. sometimes work with the University of Missouri, once again, I I was very fortunate to be in that position. Uh, And I'm glad I made the decisions that I made to work with those people. And the final thing I do really want to ask you before we wrap up is, what advice would you give someone that wants to get into the music industry and maybe doesn't have that experience mm-hmm. or ha- or talent when it comes to playing an instrument or yeah. singing or what, what have you? What kind of advice would you give somebody? Well, if you got into what we did, Phil and I, I think that you have to be very patient. You have mm-hmm. to persevere. You're going to have some horrible experiences. Um, but you have to build on those experiences. You have to learn from those experiences. Try not to make the same mistake twice. Building a reputation. I mean, I wasn't thinking to myself, I'm building a reputation when I was doing all this stuff. I was just thinking, this is the right thing to do. Yeah. And I think that when you get into the music business, especially you know the, the world that I was in, it's a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of times where you're going to feel like, wow, I, I've been defeated. But there are going to be moments where you're standing there going, I can't believe this is happening. I say don't burn any bridges, even if somebody has totally messed you around. Yeah. Don't burn bridges. Just say, okay, I'm going to move on, and I'm going to use that experience you know, as a learning experience. A, a crazy weird example is <laughs> I had the Red Hot Chili Peppers at the Old Blue. Yeah. Okay. And it was insane. It was totally <laughs> insane. It scared the hell out of me. Ten years later, they're massive, you know. Mm. And I just remember their agent calling me up. He goes, hey, we're going to give you a chili peppers date. And I go, what do you mean you're going to give me? We want you to promote it at the Hearn Center. And I'm like, really? And they're like, yeah, you were the first. You were the guy who promoted them when they were first starting out. And we want to go back. And that's an example of the kind of things that can happen, you know, when you're doing these things. Like, you know, I, I don't know how many bands I booked that I didn't like and that didn't mean anything and stuff <laughs> like that. But, you know, down the road... You're like, wow, uh, things things change. Things change rapidly yeah. sometimes. So that would be an example, one of those moments that you couldn't believe it was happening. Yes, it, it was one of those moments. And there was quite a few of them, you know, where I was working with bands, you know, that, that I wasn't sure how things were going to go for them. Yeah. And, and believe me, there's a lot of them from the 80s. And they walked in the room. They were driving across the United States in a van, you know, we thought they were putting out great records. And then, lo and behold, several years later, Mm -hmm. there they are playing stages in some of the biggest venues in the country. And those are the things that, I mean, I I have tons of those Mm -hmm. kinds of stories where I was lucky enough to have these relationships with people. And the music business was growing at a crazy rate. Mm -hmm. And I was smack in the middle of it. Wow. 
it's so exciting. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today, Richard. It was, it was wonderful chatting with you. Oh, you're welcome. It was a lot of fun talking. Thanks. Well, that's all, folks. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Vox Voice. If you ever find yourself at Cooper's Landing, take a walk on the river's edge, enjoy the music, grab a drink, and tell Richard King you heard him on our podcast. Thanks for listening.